Welcome to People with Purpose. So many people are looking for meaning, but they don't know where to start. Imagine a world where everyone could just get their purpose out of them and then actually make it happen. I'm David Roberts, and I believe that we all have a purpose, and with focus and a little help, people with purpose make a difference. And this show is where these stories come to life. Welcome to another episode of People with Purpose. Today I'm joined by Martin Wadsworth who is a uh, inventor he's he's an invented product's got more than a dozen patents to his name he's grown and sold uh, and then started businesses his latest venture is uh, discrete heat uh, and uh, in setting that up that included a an appearance on dragon's den which is uh, similar to sort of shark tank in the US uh, where he, he gave the dragons a proper run for their money so uh, be gentle with me today martin I can be very best. Have you brought your checkbook? <laughs> how, did, how did that go for you last time round? Uh, well, it was, um, we, we get asked all the time, you know, what was it like? And I always say the same thing. The first 10 or 15 minutes are utterly terrifying because you have no idea what they're going to ask you. You've never met them before. You never meet them afterwards. And obviously they can ask you any kind of questions that they like. So the first 10 minutes, you're really, really on your toes because we actually had an, an embryonic business at the time. And a lot of people said, you know, be careful because you go, go on there and they could trash your product live on national TV and that could be the end of that. So we'd already put money in, we're employing people. So it was a bit nerve-wracking, but after about 10 minutes, I thought, you know what? These aren't really as smart as you think they are, these people, because they asked some really dumb questions. I thought, oh, my God, I bet they don't keep this in the final edit because it was absolute – some of them were, were appalling, but, you know – we, we got the publicity, we, we got turned down for the money in the end, I got a good quip in against Duncan Bannertime, and it's been shown, I think it's had a million views or something on YouTube, so, you know, it's served its purpose. The oxygen of publicity, that works then, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, the oxygen of publicity, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. So what are you up to now? Well, I'll beaver it away, you know, we, we, we started, that was a few years ago now, I think 10 or 12 years ago at, at Dragon's Den, and a lot, a lot of people come on the stand at exhibitions and go, oh, you're, you're still going, because... If you don't get the money, you think that that's the end of that. But, you know, we've, uh, well, you know, from the, the business dealings that we've had together over the years at various exhibitions that, you know, we've been punting our product for 10 or 12 years. And just now it feels as if uh, we've been around long enough and the market has moved. And, you know, as to, to coin the uh, the technical director at Barrett's uh, Houses, uh, your time has come. I hope he's right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's left definitely lots going for lower temperature heating solutions, and yeah. you can definitely see how lifestyle choices, all that sort of stuff, yeah. uh, play play nicely to a discrete heating product that uh, that, that minimises the, uh, the 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 demand for heat and energy bills and all that sort of stuff. There's a few things going for you. Yeah, as I say, obviously, we just hope the economy doesn't drop off a cliff because. Like most things, it's a discretionary purchase for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, we just hope that um, we, we've got a good enough market to go at, uh, despite the uh, the headwinds that the economy is facing. So, as I'm sure you're feeling the same. Well, exactly. Yourself. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, there, and there's lots and lots of inquiries, lots and lots of interest in, yeah, in, in low carb, low carbon heating. People kind of want to do the right thing, but there's a lot of things that people don't understand about it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> We do our best to try and, you know, steer a steady course and give them pr- proper information and don't tell any lies, basically. You know? Yeah. Keep it, 
straight down the middle. Definitely, definitely. R- good rules to live by. So, uh, so that's what you're doing now, then. So, where did your story start, then? Tell us, tell us uh, how you ended up in this uh, exotic world that now, you're now, now in. How far do you want me to go back? You know, 1964, or, or should we skip the moon landings and? No, 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 I'm happy to. I'm happy to dig into all of that. You, you, you go nuts. Well, you know, I was. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure if I class as a baby boomer because I was born in the middle of 1964, and uh, I think that's just about the end of the baby boom generation. I'm on the cusp of. I'm not sure the next the next generation. So I sort of grew up in the 70s. So I obviously adopted things like punk and 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 the like. And for me, that was a you know great time. Of life. And the 80s, of course, music-wise, was just phenomenal. So um, I think I grew up in a, in a purple patch in terms of culture and, and music. And well, I suppose a lot of people from the 50s and 60s think the same. And uh, I started work in 1982, which would be 18. And uh, I started work with my dad, funnily enough, which is funny how your life goes in circles. And um, I wanted to be a teacher. I did really badly at my A-levels. I really, really messed up my A-levels. Uh, so I've got sympathy for anybody who's doing their A-levels this year that um, I know what it's like to go through the, put through the ringer. So I thought, I know, I'll go and be a teacher. And uh, and then and my dad said, no, 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 you're not going to be a teacher. So the other days are great, but the pay's rubbish. So he said, you know, I need somebody to do this, this, and this. So I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure, you know, work with your dad, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you get a car. <laughs> so I went, whoa, 18 and got a car. Thank you very much. I'll have that. So I started off uh, on the on machine tools, actually, machining parts in the workshop, and then progressed on to sales and then went out, you know, selling the products at the time, which was mainly imported products from, from overseas. And, um, and, and that went on. And then eventually, you know, um, I had some some ideas and there were some changes to legislation and um, we started to make our own products. And uh, the 80s and the 90s were a, were a good time uh, for us. Health and safety legislation came in. We made special purpose control gear for machine tools and car factories and oil rigs and all kinds of stuff. And, and we kind of rode the crest of a wave. And in, and in 1990, I went to Japan which uh, is sort of like my uh, university education. I went to live in Japan for two years. And at that time, there's a lot of transplant factories coming over to uh, to the UK, Toyota, Honda, uh, Nissan, etc. And I went working for the Japanese government, translating safety standards into Japanese and trying to explain them to Japanese engineers, which is... It doesn't sound credible now that, you know, somebody like 24, 25, whatever, clears off to Japan, failed CSE French, by the way, I'm <laughs> saying, didn't even pass CSE French, uh, goes off to learn Japanese. So I spent two years working and learning Japanese. And in the process, got all our products specified on all the factories that were being built in uh, in the UK. So the business just mushroomed and, you know, we went to, you know, uh, 10, 15, 20 million turnover. And by 1995, 96, it was uh, a real booming industry with 250 employees. We started off with, when I joined, there was five people. By 1995, 96, it was 250. Right. 
in offices in Germany and everything. So it, it was a real kind of like rags to riches uh, story, really. And obviously, my dad, my dad was very happy. <laughs> <laughs> he was very happy. Yeah. And um, so we did an MBO, which is, I know, something that you've, you've done yourself uh, uh, not too many years ago. And, and so that kind of brought us up to the year 2000s. And then um, my life took a bit of a, a swerve, really, in 2000. My wife passed away in 2000. And I had to sort of like start, I don't say start all over again, because, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to start when you've got a few quid in the bank. Mm. Um, but we had to start again as a sort of, as a, as a family. So um, in 2000, um, I had three small kids to look after. So I decided to do something else. So the business was sold to uh, an American uh, corporation. And if any of your American listeners are listening, if you want to know how to start a small business, uh, you buy a big one and put an American in charge. <laughs> because within four or five years, they transplanted it to Puerto Rico or somewhere. The factory that employed 200 people in Wigan was gone. And it was it's all been exported to the, uh, the South America for, for reasons, I presume, of you know, just, just cost. Yeah. Uh, and so I started doing property development because I had uh, three small kids at home. Uh, I was cash in the bank. Um, I meant I could work from home because it's it's a you know it's not difficult if you can afford to buy land outright and you can afford to not borrow from the banks. Then you know property development is is, is easy. It gets really tricky when you've got to borrow everything you've got and you've got to give in hot to the bank and you've got deadlines to meet and everything. So. We could afford to be, you know, fairly, um, fairly bold, if you like, with our, with our strategy. So I started a business building houses in Manchester and flat apartments. And we built about 100 units in the space of uh, four, four or five years. And um, I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity, blah, blah, blah. Then I fell out with the guy that I'd employed uh, to help me start and run the business. For reasons best known to himself, he decided that he, he wanted a, a, a chunk of the business when he had nothing to start with, and we'd agreed a uh, we'd agreed a, um, a strategy, if you like, and a, a, um, a bonus scheme. But he just decided that no, that wasn't he wanted this. So in the end, they had to like say, well, "I'm going to walk away from this." So that's exactly what I did. I said, right, I'm going to do something else uh, because I was so disheart disheartened, I think was the word. I felt so, um, what's the word? I'd say cheated in a way because, you know, I'd put my heart and soul into this business and we were building it up and everyone's going to make a load of money. And then this guy decided that it was going to just basically spoil it. So during the build, um, you, and a lot of people listen to this, you've never done any property development or built a house, they'll know that. Where you put the radiators is a big impact on how the room lays out. You know, it can take where your furniture goes, your TV, your sofa. And I had this problem, and I was very hands-on. I was, like, picking the tiles and picking the kitchens and, and the like. And I said, well, that radiator's wrong there, this is wrong there, blah, blah, blah. So, you know. Then a plumber, funnily enough, said to me, he said, why don't you try those skirting radiators, those skirting board radiators? And I went, whoa, that sounds fantastic. That is a great idea because, of course, straight away, my imagination and the engineering head started wobbling. I thought, oh, I know what this is. That sounds brilliant. So I said, yeah, get me some of those. 
And he brought me what you would probably call like baseboard heaters. And I had baseboard heaters in the States. The big, thick, chunky things, about four inches deep and two, you know, two meters long, etc. Shocking, shockingly commercial. And I thought, that's not what I imagined. And when I started uh, searching on the internet, remember the days of dial-up? <laughs> <laughs> so you turn minutes to find anything. Yeah. Um, and there was nothing. I thought, well, it's just so bloody obvious. Why the hell would you have a big steel press panel on the wall when you could just make it more like a skirting board? So I got a piece of paper and a piece of wooden skirting board and I got a colleague of mine who used to work with me at the uh, the switch company before and I drew out pretty much what I wanted and I said, why don't we do this? And, and that's how it all started. So, you know, we started making aluminium skirting board with pipes in it for the water to travel through and heat up like a radiator, which, you know, is, is <laughs> how we started the business all that years ago. And they often say to me, they say, um, say how do you make a, a small fortune in business? So you start off with a big one and go into manufacturing. <laughs> so what's that been like then, actually, uh, manufacturing in, in the UK the last, the last 10 years then? Is, what sort of challenges has that brought? Well, it, it has its own challenges because... The manufacturing base of the UK has definitely contracted. We've contracted a lot of um, capacity and technology and expertise overseas for reasons of cost and obviously with what's going on in the world at the moment. That's obviously exposed a few weaknesses um, in our own sort of supply chain. So, you know, we mainly source from, from UK suppliers. So we're quite lucky. You know, we've got suppliers in Bolton, Blackburn, Lee, for example, that, you know, probably provide 30, 40% of the materials. And some of the other stuff we do, we get from Europe. And we very get a small amount of product from China and the Far East, but it's nearly all local industry. Because as I said before, the business we had before was employing 250 people. We are world renowned for what we did. We know if anyone remembers Piper Alpha that blew up in the North Sea, 189 men and the gun. Well, when they built Piper Bravo, they put our kit on that. Hmm. You know, I'm very proud of some of the stuff that we did with our business, all the Jaguar car factories, all the Ford plants had our equipment on it. So, you know, the stuff that we did was was accepted and used around the world as far afield as Japan and, and, and America, as I've mentioned before, and indeed in Germany of all places. You know, we have a good business in Germany selling to German machine tool builders. So I'm proud of what the, what the UK can achieve. So, you know, when we set off, we did try and get as much as we could from the UK and that, you know, we probably still get more than 50% of everything that we produce from from really local suppliers. Our supply chain is quite short. Mm-hmm. And with, um, with the whole COVID thing and then, uh, yeah, as you say, what's happening in the world now, there's definitely more of a push for kind of working and collaborating with more local partners and having more of an impact on your own uh, local community. Because you, cause you are, you know, where are you based? You're based uh, Manchester, uh, right. It's actually in Atherton. Atherton, right, okay. Which, you know, someone says to me, Where's, where is your factory? So it's in the USA. They go, where is that? So the other side of Atherton. They <laughs> say, oh, okay, I didn't get that. So, so yeah, so we're on the on the, uh, on the west side of, uh, of Manchester between Bolton and, and Lee, yeah. basically. Who, uh, anybody knows the, the area at all. The Northern Powerhouse. The heart of the Northern Powerhouse, surely. The Northern Powerhouse. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting because they talked about this ULES zone around Manchester, which is enormous. It was like basically the M60 ring road 
around Manchester and it's going to be like a, you know, a, a zero carbon area or low carbon uh, area for and traffic pollution and, and your car was going to have to be scrapped. And it was all, all kinds of stuff that uh, the, the mayor was proposing. And then somebody pointed out the amount of industry that's actually within that M60 ring road around Manchester compared to, say, London, it's huge. Mm, mm. You've got Traffic Park and you know, so many industrial estates and manufacturing sites that actually it would be really a problem to just say, you know, you can't have these type of vehicles coming within this ring road. So there'd be a real serious knock-on effect of that. So I think that's been pushed back now um, as regards, because there's so much manufacturing within that that sort of envelope. Mm, mm. Yeah, but it is um, it is good to see the uh, you know the UK manufacturing. I know I know it's it's had a bit of a stuttery uh, year or so, but uh, but you're right. There's lots and lots of uh, of of great UK manufacturing businesses, and it's good to see them good to see them going. But it has been a challenging uh, market. I mean, your you your story then. There's a quite a few bits in there from the point of view of making that brave decision to to go to to Japan and do something completely different. Um, you know, you've been through stuff with your family and all and all that sort of stuff. And and then you've then set up another business. I mean, what what, what does it take, do you think, you know, characteristics wise, to kind of come up to these situations, come up against these problems and challenges and kind of work on through them and forge a new path? Don't like being poor. <laughs> Well, that's fair enough. Right, yeah. so okay, so so is it is it don't, it's not greed then? It's don't like being poor. Say other side of the same coin, isn't it? I don't know. No, I think I think I think that um, you know uh, we didn't have an impoverished. I mean, you know, I'm not saying we're impoverished childhood in the East End of London. You know, living in a bombed out warehouse. You know, we we had a relatively uh, stable house. We uh, single family, single parent for. For many years with my mum, so we weren't we weren't well off. What my dad took care of us, you know, we didn't we weren't abandoned in that respect. But you you were aware of the fact that you know if you wanted something, you had to work for it. So I mean, I got fired from my first job when I was ten, right? Yeah, which is which takes some doing because I had a paper round. So you know, it was there's no I've never had pocket money. My kids never had pocket money. So I had to I went out to work on a paper round doing the Sunday papers uh, when I was ten years old, and they the paper the, the paper shop found out through somebody else who was working there who was eleven or twelve that I was only ten. Right? Snitch. So apparently, apparently was 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 not allowed, so they had to fire me. Oh no! I did about four weeks, and then they said, oh, "I'm sorry, sorry to let you go." Like, oh, okay. But I remember this is how memories stick in your mem- in your mind. And she said, um, "Can't really pay you, but you can take some sweets." So I thought, right, thank you very much. So I went and I'll take some sweets. So pick, pick, pick to pick and mix some sweets off. And I went out and I feeling really, really gutted. Thought I'm ten and I've been fired. I mean, <laughs> I, was, I mean, even Alan Sugar wouldn't do that, would he? You know, <laughs> you're too short. Your pants are raggy. You're fired. <laughs> So uh, that was so yeah. So I, I've always had a uh, a desire to you know not not just to buy stuff, but just to feel like you know that I'm, I'm comfortably off. I'm not. I'm to worry that you know. I mean, it's what people are going through at the moment, not being able to pay the 
the fuel bill. It must be awful. You know, mm. It must be terrible. But yeah, there was a time when, you know, if I didn't have anything, you know, I would uh, have to go out and earn it. And I, I did all sorts, you know, Bob a job, to, you know, jobs around the lo- washing cars. Um, I, I mean, I worked at a farm. I worked at, I mean, the one of the funniest things I did was I got a job on a farm when I was like 14. And I was also working at the uh, chip shop peeling potatoes. Have you ever peeled 14, 56 pound packs of potatoes? You know, not with a knife. You've got a machine to do it. But it takes, you know, it, it takes willpower to get off that bus at four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon and go, I've got to pick up 14, 56 pound bags of potatoes, load them all into a machine and and peel and eye them, what have you, for the chip shop to, to make into chips. Having done a shift at the farm, picking potatoes that was going into bags to be shipped to the bloody chip shop. So... <laughs> I can have a portion of chips today and I can tell you probably what the potatoes are that made them. Oh, that's a King Edward. (laughs) (laughs) So so there's work ethic there. Work ethic seems to come through quite strongly, but also there... There's a bit... There seems a bit bit more than that with you because you've got this kind of eye for an opportunity. I mean, if if you've developed all... I mean, mean, how many patents have you got to your name? I mean, is it over a dozen? Yeah, something, something like that. I mean... I don't say an eye for opportunity. I think it's desperation. <laughs> I look at the, it's like, so, yeah, I've, I've, I have been lucky enough to have uh, ideas which have been deemed patentable. But everyone, you know, uh, there's lots of people who get patents for stuff that is absolutely useless and pointless. Yeah. So having a patent itself is not a badge of honour per se because, you know, you could, in, could invent a, I don't know, a magnetic golf ball or something that has no purpose whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's still patentable. So, yeah, I mean, I've, like I said, the stuff that went on to uh, Piper Bravo, I've got patents on that, uh, on the locks that went on the valves to hopefully stop the well, touch wood, stop the the, the rig blowing up um, again, like it like Piper Alpha. Mm. So, yeah, there's a, there's a few things that I've done. I thought, yeah, I'm pretty proud of that, and you know, quite. And and the way the thought process works, I don't think it is 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 textbook and it's just like you know sat there uh, having a drink and thinking hang on we could do this couldn't we right fair enough so you can't so you, you're coming across as quite humble because you're obviously uh somebody who's, who's who makes things happen and and all that and I, you've never come across as quite humble before Martin. i'm not quite sure what's going on in this conversation yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's because you've been in sales. All the insults ever had humble must be up there. (laughs) You're ever so humble. Yeah. So, so this podcast is called People with Purpose. That's the name of it. And uh, so, I'm so I'm wondering, uh, you know, what what part has purpose played in your life? What part has purpose played in my life? You know, I don't know if I've set out and with this like goal. I'm going to do this by such such a time, or that by such such a time. Um, it's kind of just sort of happened, mm. you know. Yeah, I don't say I've I don't say I've gone with the flow or flow with the stream because obviously I've swum against the tide often enough or against the, the, the stream many times. But I don't ever remember thinking, right, I'm going to do this by such and such a time and that by such and a time. I think it's just a, the, that sort of desire to get on and do stuff, and you know, you know. I build motorbikes in my spare time. I, you know, do other activities out of it. It's not just, it's not just work. So, 
I am kind of admire those people who say, look, you know, my objective is to be, you know, prime minister by the time I'm 50 or whatever, or CEO of a FTSE 100 company by such and such a time. But you, as I found the hard way, life's not like that. You know, you can't really plan out your life because, you know, shit happens. Yeah. You've got to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so in that case then, ask a slightly different question. What is it then that drives you? Because if, if you sold a business and uh, you, you potentially, you know, you could have probably, you, know, you didn't need to necessarily set up that property development company to, you know, you probably had um, some, some money sort of set aside, you know, and then that, that driver for, for more cash um, might not have been so urgent or pressing. And then with, the, uh, with setting up, uh, you know, the heating company, you know, you, you, you've sunk a fair bit of money into that, haven't you? So, so there's obviously been something there that's, that's driven you to, to want to pursue these things. What's, what's, what's that all about? I, su- I suppose if I was being analysed by a shrink on a couch, I guess I would say it's probably to impress me dad. Right. If I'm honest. Yeah. You know, uh, he was very successful in business and I th- and, I, and I'm not blowing me on trumpet. I think he's a successful business because, you know, I did quite a bit with that business and for that business that made it uh, successful. I'm sure he would have been successful if I hadn't been born either, but I think I put my put my, uh, put my mark on it. Uh, and I guess that's it. I guess that, that if there's some kind of Freudian examination, I think, you know, because we're single parent uh, at, at a single parent family at 10, you know, I think, you know, you, you're looking for your dad's approval all the time. Yeah. So I think that if, if I was up sort of taken apart by a shrink, I bet at the bottom of it, it, it would be something like that. But when I sold it, when we did the MBO and we sold out, and obviously you're right, you know, I could have decided to do nothing. And for a short while I did, obviously after being widowed, I decided to do nothing. But if you, if you retire at 35, all your friends are still working. Mm. You know, it's not like you're 55 or 65 and your other friends are retired or semi-retired, so you can you can do other things together. You know, they're still working nine to five, you know, and I, I didn't belong to that clique of people that were just, you know, leisurely individuals. And if I had, I would have probably become an alcoholic or, you know, just blown it all and, on, uh, well, on, on wine, women and song and then wasted the rest as George <laughs> Best famously said. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, sort of 30, 36, 37, I thought, well, I could do some property, couldn't I? Because that's not too onerous. I, I'm not doing the, I'm not doing bricklaying. You know, I'm not a bricklayer. Uh, I've got an eye for detail. I've got an eye for design. So I could do that. So I think it was just a case of, you know, you felt like you had to do something. I didn't, when we when we sold the business to the American company, I got out quick sticks. You know, I decided that all, all the platitudes about we were going to do this, we we're going to do that. I didn't want to stick around because some of the people that worked in that business that I'd grown up with, you know, I've been there since I was eighteen, and it was in mid to eighteen years effectively. Um, and I I didn't want to be there when the, that dynamic changed. So I left. I mean, my wife was poorly as well, so it was kind of like a, a, a natural decision to do that. But I wanted to do something else uh, in my own right, and obviously the property business came along. 
and I did that. Um, I mean, in between, I had another business, which was, which was fire suppression, which sunk a lot of money into uh, at the wrong time because, as I say, my, my wife was poorly, and that was that was just me sort of thrashing around looking for looking for, like you say, a purpose perhaps in life, and um, and then that fortuitous comment by the plumber kind of sort of like set me off on this on this uh, road, you know, and people asked me, you know, would I do it again? And the answer would probably be no. Mm. You know, if I'm actually honest with myself, you know, would you have done this business if you knew then what you know now? And I probably would have said no, because I know how hard it's been on everybody that's around me, uh, family and, yeah, and, and former colleagues that uh, work with me. Because it isn't easy starting a completely new business with a completely new product mm. in a rather conservative market. So I've sunk about a million quid into the business uh, over the years, which is starting to pay me back now, which is great, which is, you know, which is, which is fine. But what could I have done with that old money? I could have done something else, couldn't I? I could have carried on doing property. I, you know, I could have been, you know, could have been a Tom Bloxham <laughs> urban splash. Who knows? But one thing I do know is that you can't go back. You can't go backwards. You yeah. can only go forwards. Yeah. I'm a bit like a shark, really. If a, I won't even go backwards when I've made a wrong turning in my car. You know, <laughs> if I miss a turning, it's, oh, you got to turn around. No, no, I'm going to go all the way around the globe. I'm going <laughs> to circumnavigate the earth till I get back to where I should be. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then everything's in order. That's good. But so fam- family-wise then, so you're, because you're, your lad's working with you now, isn't he? All right. Yeah, like I say, it goes full circle. Um, he didn't do as well in his A levels that he was hoping to do, and he didn't go to university. So um, he started on the tools, fitting the products uh, about ten years ago, and he's done that, and he's done obviously sales, and he's you know he's uh, he's got a gift of the gab. You know, he's uh, very good uh, with people, much better with people than I am. You know, he's got more patience with people than I have. Um, and uh, he's now a sales and marketing director. And, um, and I did a good job of it, if I do say so myself. You know, he's, he's brought some some fresh ideas, as indeed I probably did to my dad's business, you know, the different ways of looking and doing things. And if, if I'm a chip off the old block, then I am letting him do the things that he thinks are right because... You know, you don't have all the answers yourself. Only an idiot thinks he knows all the answers. So you know, you have to employ people that are better than you in in every department, and then let them get on with it. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. So, what sort of um, what sort of values then do you follow now in your in your business activities, and how connected is that to your to your life in the real world? What sort of values do I follow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crikey, that's sort of a deep one. It's it is. Yeah, that's the well, sort of thing. I, we, that's the sort of thing we talk about on this show. I mean, you, I mean, you know, I really must listen to it. Are you are you yeah. ready? Are you ready to open up, Martin? What sort of values does the company follow, or do I follow? Well, yeah, answer the question any way you like. Okay. Well, I have, a, you know, despite the fact that I was a petty thief when I was about ten years old, uh, I still have a fairly sense of what's right and what's wrong. So I don't let our business, our sales team, if you like, or our sales machine make outrageous or or unprovable claims. I think that that is 
you know, that, that's a recipe for disaster. I've seen so many double glazing type businesses and, you know, the PPI type model and all that. Not interested. I go to sleep at night because I know that I have not ripped anybody off. Right. Mm. Yeah. We, we, you know, we play straight with the clients. We play straight with our suppliers. You know, we pay our suppliers on time, um, usually. <laughs> but uh, I've had a few sticky moments over the years, as I'm sure many businesses have, and our suppliers have stuck with us. So thank you to all our suppliers who have who have helped out when the, the times were lean. Um, but, yeah, we, we pay our suppliers and we pay our staff uh, well, and, you know, we give uh, compassionate leave for the people when they need it we don't we're not taskmasters and you know we try and we try and build a team you know try and build a, a, a family environment if we can you know we still got goals and kpis to meet so you know it's not like we're a pushover it's not like we've got bean bags around the office and everyone could just chill out you know we have got you know fairly fairly uh ambitious targets for the business but you know we don't beat people up like you see some of the um hard sell organizations do we try to let the product do the talking for us you know we try to explain the benefits and people will make their own decision you know as you know yourself if people will choose on the floor or they'll choose radiators if that's the best solution for them and you know we just have to roll with it um if we don't always win the order mm-hmm. yeah absolutely what we're finding at the minute that you know, we, we we with with the increase in interest in you know low carbon heating, low temperature heating. Yeah, that that comes with an increase in inquiries, and we are we're we're telling a lot a lot of customers or potential customers that there's a few things they need to do before they can look to install a heat pump or look to install underfloor, oh, yeah, for example, yes. and. Um, yeah. And sometimes yeah. that's that's not a message that somebody wants to hear. You, you know, well, you're supposed you, to be selling yeah. to me, aren't you? You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that is one thing that you can say about about new heat that you don't get. Well, I've certainly not heard people uh, make any suggestion that there's any been any mis-selling, which isn't the case with other people that we've come across where you know they've sold a heat pump and there's no remediation of the property, and you think this is just going to run on direct electric. This is going to be twice the cost of what they were paying before yeah. for heating. So, you know, we're in a fortunate position. We don't do the heating uh, element, if you like, the heating source. We just provide the emitter. So we can be fairly agnostic. You know, we can say, if you want a gas boiler, fine. If you want a heat pump, that's fine. If you want to go direct electric, that's fine. We've got a solution for it. We don't have to be in any particular one camp, which obviously is a nice position to be in. But we do try to be fair to people. And when they say, oh, I've been told by XYZ company that heat pump's going to save me 70% of my energy bill, they say, well, you know, I think that you might want to go and revisit that and perhaps get an alternative quote yeah, yeah. somebody else without in remediation to your property. It's, it's not suitable. So, you know, and that is sometimes is a difficult difficult conversation to tell somebody the baby's ugly yeah 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 and i suppose it, it, it comes back to the values question in a way as well because you know when we new heat are mcs accredited therefore we follow yeah. certain standards yeah, which means yeah. that that we that the way that we market the way that we sell the way that we you know in in deliver service install all of that sort of stuff it has to be done a certain way but because our values one of our values is, is integrity then we wouldn't do it any other way anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's just it's just that okay, there's a few extra rules we've got to follow that 
you know, we perhaps might do things slightly differently, but um, but it, it's in the spirit of how he would do business in the first place, which is, you know, when you said, what do you mean me or do you mean the business? You know, you founded the business uh, so, and, and very often the business comes in the image of the founder, doesn't it? So, uh, so you know, if integrity is right up there for you, then you would expect that to play through in the way that you do business. Well, I hope so. You know, as I say, we don't... Uh, I've, I have come across very intelligent people in the past who wanted to get rich quick. Mm. And the only way to do that is at somebody else's expense, you know, by, you know, get rich Ponzi schemes and basically um, effectively fraud, fraud, being fraudulent with mm. people, mm. you know, in investment schemes. So when I, we talked before about patents, that was one in particular, that, you know, a person that uh, I know, from, from where I live, would go around with his patent application for all kinds of nonsense. And to a lot of people, a patent application is like having a, a golden goose. It's going to lay golden eggs, isn't it? And he would get them to invest in these these businesses, which had no intention of ever trading, hmm. you know, actually making the product or whatever it was that they designed. But they'd all put 10, 15, 20, hundreds of thousands of pounds in some cases. And then guess what? The business would, would fail or would, would fail to float or do anything. And and he would have made a few hundred thousand pounds, but he'd made a lot of enemies in the process. Yeah. And I said to I said to him on one particular occasion, if you worked half as hard legitimately as you do at being crooked, you'd be a multimillionaire anyway. So I don't know why you, why you have to take that route, but it's like the frog and the scorpion, isn't it? He can't help himself. He has to... He has to feel like he gets one over on people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, so look, um, I'm, I suppose another thing that I'm interested in finding out a little bit about you is uh, is Ooh. is lessons that you've learned through your Ooh. through your life. So, so what's so what? So let, let's start off with your biggest failure. What's been your biggest failure, and what did you learn from that? God, biggest failure. Whew. And this is where this is a hum- humility test. Oh. <laughs> oh, my biggest failure. God. You know, the thing is that I'm such a kind of positive... I don't remember those kind of failures. I think if you really focus on your failures, you you never get up again. You go, you know, uh, I, think, I think one of the failures I would do is I fail to spot people sometimes that... Uh, don't have my best interest at heart. And I have given away about a quarter of a million quid to people who were apparently friends of mine. And I'll never see it again. And I think, you know, that was a stupid thing to do, really. Mm. But then I say, you know what? At the end of the day, you know, you can't take it with you. We made them happy for a short period of time. So what? My biggest failure. Been so many. <laughs> I don't know what to choose from. Uh, you know what I do? That's a really hard question to ask because I don't, I don't dwell on on. I'm a bit like a, a gambler, really. I suppose you know, only ever tells you about his winnings, never tells you about the how yeah, much yeah. he lost at the races. Only I, oh, I, I picked three winners. Well, you so I mean? so if you, so if you can't answer the question in a way, you've already you've you've, you've kind of answered the question in a slightly different way because what in a way what you're saying is that. You don't really recognise failure as a as a thing 
you know, and some people say there's no such thing as failure. There's just feedback. Well, so you learn more from you from failures than you do from your successes. That's a, is 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 one lesson I'd say from it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. Uh, well, you know, I've I've put money into ventures that didn't work out, and you look back and you go, "That was that was just stupid, wasn't it?" So, I've learned, I guess, from that is to be a bit more circumspect mm. about uh, where where you put your money. But one thing I've learned with um with, with this thing is 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 about in in that as an example, investing in things looks like a good idea. It's it's the head versus heart thing, and and I, I one thing I've learned over the last. I don't know five ten years is 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 which one's talking because uh, because your 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 intuition is is a bit like a muscle you've got to exercise it you know and, and there's quite quite often either with investments or with just making decisions about which way to go certain strategies or whatever you know you sort of you sort of you go, you go okay we'll go for this we'll give it a go and then but you know in the back of in the back of your mind or or deep down somewhere that this probably isn't going to work but you're going to give it a go anyway. I know what my worst decision was. Go on. I, I do know that now. You've reminded me. <laughs> I went to buy an Aston Martin DB5 on the Isle of Wight. <laughs> this is this sounds like a proper third world problem, this. This is a proper third world problem. Yeah, yeah, okay, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to buy an Aston Martin DB5 on the Isle of Wight in 2000 and something, whatever it was. I went to see this old geezer. He's a lovely old guy. He must have had about a dozen old cars, Gordon Keebles and Jaguars and God knows what in his barn. And he had this Aston Martin in dark blue, MOT, a bit tatty, right? And I took it out for a drive and uh, he said to me, he said, oh, I've had a guy on from London, he said, and he's never even seen it. He's offered me 35000 for it. And I went, 35000 I thought... I'm here. Now, I bet if I offered him 30, right, he'd take it. He'd take it because I'm here, he's chatting, he's, you know, I'm an, I'm an enthusiast, I like, I like old cars. And I, and I thought, you know what, it probably wants work, probably wants money spending on it. I won't do it. I bought, I bought something, a, 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 another car that had been restored and it was mint condition, so I bought that instead. And I look back at that and I think, you pillock, <laughs> you prat, I could have bought that I could have stuck it in my garage and I could have done nothing. I could have done nothing to it. I could have left it there and it'd be worth half a million quid now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's that's the only thing I can think of that would say is uh, is a failure of mine. Was that that bit about the intuition brought it back to me. So I was kicking myself. So you know, because I, I, I could have just about squeezed it. I thought I could buy that car and I could buy that one. I could stick it in the garage and do nothing. I thought no. That's just being silly. <laughs> but it wasn't. It was the right thing to have done, but I didn't. Well, there you go. Follow your intuition. I mean, that's the most roundabout way I've ever got to that as an answer, but I'll take it. I'll take it as a win. That's good. That's good. All right, good. Well, let's move on then to some quick fire questions then to get, okay. to get under the bonnet of, uh, of, of M- Martin. And uh, the first question then is, what's your favourite album and why? Uh, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. That's the first record that I remember having a really profound effect upon me as a as a teenager. I'd be about fourteen or fifteen, so you know I could write, I can rail off a whole road of albums that you probably never even heard of, and and so on, and the obvious ones like you know like Rumours or God whatever. 
But I can honestly point to that record and say, that record motivated me to do something with my life. In particular, the track Time. Yeah. You know it with the clocks at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go, yeah, you're right. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you, you know, no one told you when to run. You miss the starting gun and you go, shit. And it's because my mum's partner at the time, she's got, she, she met another, another fella. He died. He died of a heart attack in the house. Oh, God. Sorry. 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 And I was there. And I thought, Jesus, you know, you know, it's, you know, it's real. You know, you do. You, you get old and for no reason, on random times, you die. And uh, that album and that track really put a boot on my ass and said, you know, you've only got 70 years or whatever you've got, maybe even less. Mm. Get on with it. Yeah. Fair play. Well, that, what a great answer. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and it's a great album as well. Yeah. It is actually a great album. So, uh, yeah. So, okay. So, so we're going to start me off now. Go on. Uh, okay. The next one then is, uh, is what would be your perfect weekend? Oh, perfect weekend. Oh. I've got to keep it clean, obviously. <laughs> this is going out to millions, I can tell. Absolutely. Uh, I would say a long, Winning a race on my motocross bike uh, on a Sunday and coming home and all my family's there for a big barbecue and we have a great time and get completely lashed and the sun is shining. Fantastic. That's going to be a perfect weekend. And what, what race would it be? Uh, well, I'd be in the old timers now. I'm in the Twin Shock uh, air-cooled 1980s machines. That's my class. I'm not ridden for a while with the COVID, etc. but that's the one that I would uh, take part. I went out the other weekend with my son actually on our motorbikes um, off-road, which was an enduro type thing. Uh, that was good. That was really enjoyable, um, despite braining myself on a post. Um, <laughs> has to do the job, I guess. Yeah, yeah that was my perfect weekend. Oh, sounds you good. Know, motorbikes, beer and, and family and barbecue, I think. Ideal, ideal. What did your nine-year-old self love to do? This is before you got fired, so, you know, they, they, it was a different time. <laughs> Keep my job. <laughs> nine-year-old self. You know, people say, what do you want to be? And I want to be an astronaut, what with this, what with that? Uh, a nine-year-old self. This was 1973, Martin. Yeah, I, I know what it was. You know, I, don't, I don't remember at that time. I was just such a kind of like... You know, laissez-faire, you know, I can't remember thinking I'm going to be an astronaut or a train driver or a racing driver. I can't remember any of those aspirations like that as a kid. But I think I was, I was feckless, really, wasn't I? I was, I was hopeless as a kid. What would I tell my nine-year-old self? Or what would I... Well, what, 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 the, the question was, what did, what did you love to do when you were nine? Oh, when I was nine? Mm. Oh. I used to uh, push bikes all the time. It was always out. I mean... Kids these days don't seem to have that desire to be out. I mean, you know, let's face it, three TV channels, if you're lucky, mm. yeah? TV was rubbish at four o'clock. So I was just out, you know, just, was, I lived on a, on a small estate uh, near, near Manchester and there'd be dozens of kids and we'd all be out like till eight, nine o'clock at night, you know, uh, even at nine years old on your bikes and 
going places. So, yeah, I just used to walk out on my boat, on my on my pedal cycle at that time, a push bike. Yeah, they might have a chopper then. Don't chopper a or chopper. grifter? The grifter was the heavy one, wasn't it? They were all heavy at them. They were all made out of copper <laughs> steel, weren't they? Yeah, they those, were. Uh, yeah, yeah. Rally bikes. Yeah, uh, and it was a chopper. I had a, I had a chopper at nine. I think I had a chopper when I was 10. I think my dad got me a chopper when I was 10, just to say sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so what makes you lose track of time? Oh, God, I lose track of time. When I'm in my shed on my motorbikes, when I'm doing something like I have a workshop with lathes and machine tools and stuff, and I get I, – I, I start off doing stupid projects. Like, you know, it would be easier and cheaper to buy a new one, right? But I sort of think, no, 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 I am going to remake this, you know, this uh, prop shaft myself, you know, when I could buy one off eBay for like a tenner. And it's cost me 15 quid for the steel, and I've got to turn it and take like four hours. So I will I will drift off uh, in, the, uh, in the shed doing a job, uh, making something, and it's the most important thing in the world, but really it's not, you know. It's, <laughs> Completely it's unnecessary. A, it's a horrible, it's a horrible, dirty old motorbike that from, that nobody wants from the eighties. So. Perfect. Okay. Well, that sounds all right. So you got, everyone's got to have a hobby. And is there any such thing as a stupid question? There's a thing as a stupid answer. <laughs> and what's your greatest fear? My greatest fear. My greatest fear. Hmm. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say dying, but I'm not sure there is. Uh, I think my greatest, my greatest fear would be to have to be absolutely poor and destitute. I think that would be horrible, you know, to to not know, to have that insecurity, you know, not have a roof over your head potentially, and not know where your next meal could be from. That I think that is a life shortening degree of stress, and and especially if you've got kids, it would be awful if you have to think how you're going to feed. That I think would be my worst fear if I was, for whatever reason, suddenly you know, absolutely destitute. And what would you do if you were confronted with that fear in reality? Well, if it happened, hmm. well, I'd probably go out of the rubber bank or I would start <laughs> doing something that, that paid money. You know, I would, I'd, I'd find, you know, as I say, I've, I'm not being scared of hard work, but obviously I'm 58 now. Probably couldn't start digging holes, couldn't dig in trenches for a living. So I'd have to find something else to do, wouldn't I? Go and get a job at B&Q or something. I'd be good at that. I'd be the busybody walking around B&Q, desperately trying to find people who don't know what they're looking for or don't know what to do. And I could say, I can help you with that. I know how to grout tiles. I know how to clear drains. What's your problem? There you go. I'd get a job in like a B&Q, yeah. Four candles. <laughs> Excellent. What makes you cry with laughter? Oh, well, the funniest thing I've ever seen and still uh, laugh at now is a film with Lauren Hardy called Big Business. And it's a silent one where they're selling Christmas trees. So I grew up at that time when Lauren Hardy was still shown on the afternoons in black and white on Saturdays. And I, I watched them. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I've got lots of comedians that I really like today, like a, a really big fan of Lee Mack. I think he's... I think he's fantastic. Uh, he makes me laugh out loud and uh, cry with laughter. I can honestly say that the one thing that's made me cry with laughter more times than anything else is Lauren Hardy, big business, 
And if you want to watch it, it's on YouTube and it's 20 minutes of sheer joyous chaos. Yeah. I, I've got, that's a childhood memory for me as well. Yeah. Lauren Hardy and, uh, Harold Lloyd and, and all, all those black and white comedians. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. All them. Not Charlie Chaplin, I found him a bit dull, but that one, Christmas tree trapped in the door, Ben Finlayson, wonky eye, hang on. Yeah, it just descends into utter, utter carnage and it uh, still tickles me now, you know, and I show people, they they, they find it amusing. It's, the, it's 1928 or something, or something yeah. really, really, you know, ancient history, but still remarkably funny. Fantastic. Okay, great. Well, I've got one last question for you then. So, yeah. uh, so who inspires you the most and why? Uh, oh, it's you, David, obviously. It's you. <laughs> Pres- apart from present company. Present company. I would say probably my dad. I would say uh, the people that you I met lots and lots of people over the years, you know, big business people and, and, and uh, I met Prince Charles, I met Prince Harry, and, you know, and people like that. But probably... Uh, uh, my dad, and uh, there's no, nothing wrong in that, is there? Nothing wrong with that at all. Brilliant. Good. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Martin. You've been brilliant. Well, I hope that obviously your audience now rockets. Absolutely. When, uh, people find out that I've been on the show. You I know, can forget s- Johnny Ball. <laughs> forget Johnny Ball. You've had Martin Wadsworth. Let's face it. Exactly. I can think of a number. You're my, you're my, you're my second TV celebrity to have to come on the show. Yeah, you see. So there you go. TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second the best. Why not? Yeah. Save the best till not quite last. <laughs> Absolutely. That's brilliant. Thanks, Martin. Been great to have you on. You're very welcome. Thanks, David. See you soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to People with Purpose. I hope you've enjoyed the show and are enjoying going on this journey. Please remember to like and subscribe and give us a five-star review. Uh, Tell all your friends. And if you're interested in finding out more about any of the things we've covered in this episode of People With Purpose, just get in touch. All the details are in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.